From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Maybe you've heard the alarming line about the Amazon fires that the planet's lungs are burning. That is part of the picture. Today, much-needed context from a CU Boulder scientist who has studied fires in the Amazon for years. Then, the Air Force Academy wasn't always in Colorado Springs. The first class of plebes arrives at Lowry Air Force Base in Denver for the beginning of the course at the United States Air Force Academy. Plus, the state's new poet laureate takes us to where he grew up. I am really interested in using poetry as a tool to connect with communities about what they're going through and what matters to them. And the Carolina Bluegrass Act, Steep Canyon Rangers. Colorado was our first road trip as a band. Throw the window wide and feel the wind on the mountainside. Don't you worry anymore. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Amazon rainforest is experiencing one of the worst fire seasons in recent history. More than 43,000 fires have burned in the region since January, almost double the number this time last year. Well, meanwhile, in our own hemisphere, Jennifer Balch, director of the Earth Lab at CU Boulder, has been monitoring the situation for the past 15 years. And Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You know, I'm really craving context with this story. I mean, I understand that fire is not uncommon in the Amazon rainforest. So how does this year compare to previous ones? So let me paint a picture for you of what's going on on the ground, because the information we have right now is coming from satellites looking at the Amazon from space, detecting really, really hot things, so hot fires. And there's three different types of fires that we're seeing from space. One are the deforestation fires that are intended to convert lands for pasture or cropland. We're seeing maintenance fires where fires used to rejuvenate pasture grasses. And we're also seeing escaped wildfires, um, fires that move into otherwise intact Amazon forests. And this year is particularly bad. In fact, it's 60% more fires that we're seeing from space than we've seen in the last three years. But it's not the worst fire season that we've seen. And in fact, we've seen uh, peaks of fire activity in the Amazon over the last several decades. Okay, so this is part of an overall trend, but you say there are uh, quite a few fires this year, and is the nature of them uh, more of the deforestation fires that were intentionally set? Is the nature of them wildfire or what? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of intentional land use fires, almost kind of a pent-up need and demand for using the land for for crops and for um, cattle pastures. And so given the, the shift in the political situation in Brazil, there's been a huge increase in um, using fire to deforest lands because they're more valuable without the forests that are on them, unfortunately. You also mentioned maintenance fires. I mean, I also think a fire is a healthy part of the ecosystem. So are there some fires burning in the Amazon that are doing some good, could we say? So the Amazon forests are very different than the forests that we have here in Colorado in the, in the sense that they haven't really experienced fire across their evolutionary history in the same way our forests have. Oh. And so fires that happen in the Amazon can actually be incredibly damaging uh, because there are no trees that have super thick bark and adaptations to fire like our ponderosa pine forests, for example. 
So we can't say that any of the fires are doing good. No, they're doing quite a bit of harm um, because these forests are really sensitive. And so I, I participated in a large-scale burn experiment where we experimentally burned different plots of Amazon forest to see what was the actual tipping point of this forest system. And we burned one plot every every year. We burned a second plot every three years, and we kept a control plot intact so we could compare that burned forest to that unburned forest. And essentially what we found over a decade-long experiment was that we can reach that tipping point with fire and drought very, very quickly, where we lost 60% of the trees in those areas that experienced repeated burns. And we had the influx of new grasses and essentially could convert that forest to a grassland system in less than a decade. In less than a decade, you can turn Amazon rainforest into a grassland with, I gather, much different, not only uh, flora, but fauna too, right? We have to think about the critters. That's right. There's... um a Brazilian ama, which is kind of like an ostrich that lives in the Brazilian savanna. And at the end of our experiment, we started to see these amazing birds walking through our burned over forest. We saw insect species, uh, butterflies that were only present in the savanna grassland system. And so we were seeing a turnover of the species in this forest to ones that prefer grasses. We'll get back to critters in just a moment. But I, I want to sum up a little bit of what I hear you saying. Uh, that it's bad this year. It's not the worst it's ever been by any means. This is part of a larger trend. And I guess what I want to know, Jennifer Balch from the Earth Lab at CU Boulder, is how worried are you this season? So I'm I'm really concerned. We've already lost 20% of the Amazon forests to land use and land use change. And so the question we have now, and this is what Brazil is facing, but really this is a global question of how do we preserve livelihoods while also preserving the incredible natural heritage and biodiversity that these forests hold. And so as a, as a scientist, I can tell you that that the Amazon forest, it can quickly convert to something very different than it is. And it's not a projection out to 2100 about how the forests are going to change. This is something that can happen right now. And the the areas that this is happening at is literally the forest edges where you have the conversion of um, land use change. You've got ignitions from people using that landscape, and you've got an influx of non-native invasive grasses that are essentially following pastures. They're hitchhikers. And so given that confluence that's happening at forest edges, you can quickly get conversion. And the southern part of the Amazon basin where I did this work we found that 10% of the forests in this region are edges. They're exposed to drier conditions, they're exposed to ignitions, and they're exposed to seeds from grasses. They're vulnerable. And so in a way, it's like eating at a pie from the outside in. I'm really glad you mentioned livelihoods, because I think it's one thing to, from afar, um, bemoan what's happening in the Amazon. It's another thing to want to take care of your family and to see the Amazon if you're near it as economic opportunity. Is that a nut that can be cracked in time, helping balance the livelihoods and the ecology? I'm an optimist, so my answer is yes. And I, 
we can have both. And I think we as scientists, international teams of scientists needs to need to put our heads together. We as nations need to put our heads together to solve the Amazon fire problem because we're not going to do it alone. And frankly, in the U.S., we somewhat failed at this. We deforested. And in fact, fire was a huge part of our frontier expansion. And so it's very unfair for us to point a finger huh. um, because we did use fire as part of our westward expansion of our frontier 200 years ago. And it took us about 100 years to expand that frontier. Now, Brazil's frontier is moving northwestward, and fire is a critical tool in, in sustaining and achieving progress. And so the question that we have is, how can we do this better? How can we um, create sustainable development? How can we create and invest in carbon markets that really do pay for the carbon to stay in the forests? Um, how can we do those things to the, together and collectively um, as a global community rather than fighting about it. Okay, the statement that we keep hearing in the news is that with the Amazon fires, the planet's lungs are burning. Uh, what do you make of that line scientifically, just briefly? So we need all of the world's forests. The world's forests are the lungs of the world, but the Amazon is is part of a lung. It's not the entire lung. Um, but what what is really important is that the Amazon generates about 30% of the rainfall that falls back on the Amazon. And so it's it's really critically important for its own cycling of water and nutrients um, and absorbing carbon dioxide. Um, we don't want that forest system to instantly go up into the atmosphere and smoke. That's 200, There's 230 petagrams of carbon stored in tropical forests around the world. It would be a disaster if we put all of that up into the atmosphere. We emit about nine petagrams of carbon a year in fossil fuel combustion emissions. So just think about the scale of putting all of that carbon in the atmosphere. We have about a minute left. So just briefly, I want you to tell us about these ants that actually create <laughs> fire breaks, and then we'll wrap it up. So one of the most surprising discoveries we made was that these leaf cutter ants, um, which essentially harvest leaves and grow fungus and then eat the fungus, they remove all of the leaf litter and debris around their nests and their trails, and they love edges. And so they effectively created these amazing little fire breaks where the fire couldn't move over their trails and their nests. And so we... one amazing discovery we made was that the burned area at the edge was less than it was in the at the interior because these little ants were creating these fire breaks. Huh. Jennifer, thanks for sharing your years of research in the Amazon with us. Thank you. Jennifer Balch directs the Earth Lab at CU Boulder and has indeed been monitoring the Amazon for much of her career. The Cadet Chapel at the Air Force Academy closed to the public this week for extensive renovations. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce toured the jaw-dropping chapel, and he tells us that shortcuts in its original construction have plagued it from the beginning. You won't get to play this organ for a while. No, it's actually quite devastating to lose um, both my instruments for the next however long it takes. The Air Force Academy's Catholic music director, Katherine Johnson, normally plays a much smaller organ downstairs in the Catholic chapel. There are actually six chapels for different religions inside this one iconic structure. 
However, every once in a while, for special events and for funerals and memorials, Johnson comes upstairs and plays the great main hall, the Protestant chapel, sitting at the keys of this truly massive organ with more than 4,000 pipes. Thousands and thousands of pipes. Some of them still work. Like the organ, the whole chapel is stunning and failing. An aluminum cavern with a vaulted, triangular ceiling reaching 99 feet. Down on the floor, it's the first time Gail Frost has been inside since her son got married 11 years ago. Oh, the architecture with the spires pointing up to heaven is just... And the glasswork is so, so beautiful. The stained glass she's talking about, 24,000 brick-sized pieces in 24 colors, largely blues and purples, mixed with touches of green, orange, red. Bands of this glass run up the entire height to create a web of interconnecting diamonds. The light in the chapel is constantly changing through the day, through the seasons, and all of this, all of the glass, each of the aluminum panels, it is all coming down. It's a sad day for a lot of us in that uh, it's an old friend. Air Force Academy Superintendent Lieutenant General Jay Silveria was a cadet himself in the 80s. Our old friend, my old friend, needs some help and has leaked from the day that it was opened. It drips all over. Academy architect Dwayne Boyle is heading this $158 million renovation. We had a funeral in here a, a few weeks ago and it was raining outside and it was extremely wet in here. In the 1950s, the original architect, Walter Netsch Jr., wanted a modernist reimagining of those timeless European cathedrals. Flying buttresses, 17 spires, all the elements are there. Only imagine Boeing built it. You know, the building's been widely accepted as one of the best pieces of modernist architecture in the world. To deal with rain, Netsch designed an elaborate network of gutters beneath the aluminum panels. But the project was over budget, so instead the Air Force was like, eh, we'll just caulk everything. So caulking projects had never worked. We spent enormous amounts of money over the last decades trying to recaulk it. Thus, all the leaks. Right next to where I'm interviewing Boyle, there are obvious water stains on the wall. A piece of damaged plaster once crashed down onto the floor. Which is obviously a, a safety issue that's uh, of concern. The chapel's renovation was to start much earlier this year. Then the Air Force rerouted that money to Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida to address hurricane damage. Now, with the new money from Congress in hand, the Academy will pull everything out of the chapel, build an enormous airplane hangar over the whole thing, and strip the chapel down to its steel skeleton. Then, add in that original network of rain gutters Netsch designed, and finally, put every aluminum panel, every single piece of glass back exactly where it was, as Boyle perhaps understates. It's a major project. I'm just sad for the cadets that aren't going to have this as part of their view as they walk to class every day. Shannon Kegler is milling about the chapel with her husband, Sean Krolikowski. They got married here, too, last November. One last look before they, uh, you know, start the process. It'll be a couple years. (laughs) And up above the pews, playing the organ she loves, Katherine Johnson knows it's not goodbye forever. I will get this instrument back and this beautiful space to worship in back. Eventually, I just have to be patient. The Air Force hopes to have the Cadet Chapel renovation complete by November 2022, 
The organs will also be restored and will sound like new. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Okay, all this talk about the Air Force Academy Chapel made us think of the Academy's earliest days, which weren't in Colorado Springs. The first class of plebes arrives at Lowry Air Force Base in Denver for the beginning of the course at the United States Air Force Academy, temporarily located at the base until the permanent school is built at Colorado Springs. Yes, that first class enrolled at Lowry in 1954, and there's a famous church there, too, where President Dwight Eisenhower often worshipped and where cadets returned after graduation to get married. To talk about the little white chapel in Lowry is Jeannie Larkins, head of the Lowry Foundation. Jeannie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. How did Dwight Eisenhower come to worship at what's now known, in fact, as the Eisenhower Chapel at Lowry? Right. Well, um, Dwight Eisenhower, during his presidency, considered Denver to be his summer White House. His wife, Mamie Eisenhower, grew up in Denver, not too far away from Lowry. So they enjoyed coming there during the summers um, in the 1950s when he was president. And part of his routine was to come to the chapel for services. Um, The officers club and, and his office were located right across the street from the chapel um, at the location that's now Stanley British Primary School. So, What does the chapel look like today? Uh, it's delightfully remains almost exactly as it was. Okay. So it's a wonderful experience for people that were at the chapel originally. They come back and, and the furnishings, the interior, everything remains very, very, very much as it was. Uh, where did the president sit? And, and uh, is that marked somehow? It is. It is. We have a, a pew that's about halfway halfway down the aisle that has a little placard that shows that that was his favorite pew where he, he liked to sit. Not in the front row. Not in the front row. Not in the front row. <laughs> I guess maybe he didn't want to draw attention to himself or something. Exactly. exactly. Yes. And because of Eisenhower's attendance, uh, this is now on the National Register of Historic Places, Uh, When the chapel was built, what would Lowry have looked like? Right. Well, it was one of four chapels that were on the Air Force Base. They were all somewhat identical, and they were actually built to be temporary buildings. So um, it's... the fact that it remains and that we're taking good care of it and that it's um, going to be around for a long time is is kind of a testament to all the work that's going in to keep it it alive and keep it... um, well cared for. We're in the middle of a renovation ourselves. So um, it's... To keep this temporary building exactly, going you know, exactly, for, for decades exactly. to come. Would Lowry have felt awfully far away from the city at that point? You know, I think yes and no. Um, the original Lowry Field was located at 38th and Dahlia, which seems even closer in. And huh. then it was moved out to um, the Lowry area later on. But um, there were 1.1 million people that came through that Air Force Base during the years that it was open. So it was a bustling, thriving um, community, self-sustained community that was uh, very, very large and robust. And yeah, massive. Massive, yes. Uh, as you say, there were four different chapels on the base. But when you talk to people, you know, military and civilian, about the Eisenhower Chapel, what are some of their favorite stories? Oh, gosh. You know, almost daily in in my job at the chapel, um, people come to visit and often with tears in their eyes because they were 
as you mentioned, married at the chapel 50 years ago, or they baptized a child there, or they buried a, a parent or a loved one there. So it's a place that's full of wonderful memories, and, and most of which are tied in some form or fashion to the Air Force Base and people's time there. Okay, so we began this segment by talking about the renovations at the Air Force Academy Chapel in Colorado Springs. In Lowry, then, at the chapel there, renovations of a different sort, will they be very difficult? Is it hard to get I don't know. Oh, curtain we, rods or <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are right in the thick of a of a major exterior restoration. Um the all this siding on the outside of the chapel which was a uh, pine tongue and groove siding is being removed, cleaned, and what can be salvaged is being put back. Mm. And uh, otherwise, we're putting new siding where we can't replace the old siding. But we received a grant from the Colorado um, State History Fund for a $100,000 matching grant that we've raised. And that work is in progress now. So. Before we go, I have mm-hmm. to share one of my favorite bits of Denver trivia. Yes. Uh, that Lowry is named for, I think I have this right, Second Lieutenant Francis Lowry. Pretty special guy. Yes. Tell me about. Yes. So he was a, um, a pilot in World War I. He was an aerial observer, and he was an artillery spotter. So he was flying on his 33rd mission when he was shot down with his co-pilot. And um, he was the first Denver aviator to be killed in World War I. Right. I mean, in World War I, the, the notion of aviation warfare would have still been... Uh, daring and thrilling and novel, I suppose. Exactly. And he's buried um, at the cemetery, at Fairmont Cemetery, right next door to Lowry, just south of Lowry. And there's a nice monument there to his honor that's over 100 years old. I had no idea. More good trivia. (laughs) Jeannie, thank you so much for the history. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Jeannie Larkins is executive director of the Lowry Foundation. Denver's Lowry neighborhood is home to the Eisenhower Chapel. All right. In our feedback segment, loud and clear, I have a correction to make. On Wednesday, we had Mike Johnston on. He just dropped out of the Democratic Senate primary. And in describing his political resume, I said that he came in second in the 2018 Democratic primary for governor. That's not true. As State Representative Lisa Cutter pointed out to me on Twitter, Johnston came in third. In second place was Kerry Kennedy. The fact that my mistake meant I didn't give a female candidate her due was especially vexing for Twitter user at Sadie Sadie Bess. She writes, stop erasing women candidates. Not only do they exist, but they're also electable. Your feedback and story ideas are always welcome, encouraged even. Find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org connect. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. We meet Colorado's new poet laureate, not here in the studio, but in the Denver neighborhood where he grew up. I'm Ryan Warner. here with CPR News. On her way to visit her boyfriend in the United States, Paola, a woman from Chile, is stopped at customs. And she never actually makes it out of the airport. 
At any point, is somebody explaining to you exactly what you've done wrong? Yes, I try marijuana in a place which is not legal for immigrants. That was my mistake. On the next episode of On Something Love in the Time of Legalization, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Where you grow up helps shape who you become. But what happens when parts of that place disappear or become unrecognizable? Bobby Lefebvre is Colorado's new poet laureate. His family has lived in the North Denver neighborhood Sunnyside since the 1960s. And like much of Denver, it has changed a lot since he was little. Lefebvre recently showed Colorado Matters producer Exandra McMahon around Sunnyside, which has inspired him creatively throughout his life. Uh, Here on the right... 4230, this is my mom's uh, mother's home. So that, that home's still in the family. Um, right across the street here on the corner is where my dad's parents live. And so my grandma still lives there. She just turned 90 in March. My grandma has the family over every Wednesday night. I don't make it nearly as much as I should, but every Wednesday my family gathers at my, my grandma's house. But up here on the left is sort of where the VFW hall was, and if you look now, it's sort of all townhomes. Um, This corner here was the site of many parties and celebrations. Yeah, so like if if you were walking into the VFW hall, would the door have been right on the side? Yeah, the door would be like right, so actually right on the corner here, the door was sort of like facing the street. So you would walk in literally right here, sort of at the angle that you can see the, these townhomes. The VFW is, was really the place that working class families rented out for all of their celebrations, you know, so my parents actually celebrated their wedding here, so they had their wedding ceremony here. When a relative would pass, there would be funeral celebrations here after the mass, uh, large potlucks and, you know, people coming together for those things, and it was it was something that existed here as sort of a monument to the community, and it was longstanding, you know, for Many, many years, this was a place that we gathered to celebrate, mourn, and all of those things. In 2015, when it was all boarded up, you actually came down here and did a piece about the hall. Beyond the bones of this boarded up building, the spirit of the people beats to the rhythm of yesterday. Inside, the ghosts of proud veterans sit at the bar exchanging war stories and broken American dreams. If these walls could talk, they would be bilingual and multicultural. They would speak of weddings and baptisms and the tears loved ones shed after funerals. They would speak of brotherhood and community and the occasional fistfight in the parking lots, the handshake of respect after the blows were thrown. So tell me about why you really wanted to make this piece. You know, I, we had heard that it was being demolished. And when you start to think of how many places are gone now, we often forget that buildings also hold cultural memory, right? And so I started to think about what has this building witnessed throughout its existence? How many wedding parties, how many birthday parties, how many funeral celebrations were celebrated there? And I started to think about all those stories in addition to the ones in my family, and uh, just figured, hey, I'm going to kind of on a whim write a quick piece, and I I hit one of my friends up who's a a videographer. We came down here. I literally wrote the piece on site. We had big cue cards um, that we we wrote the the poem onto so that I could 
perform the piece off on camera. And um, I just try to capture some of that spirit because once a building's gone, unfortunately, so too do a lot of the memories when you're not passing by it and have that daily reminder of what it was. Speaking of your poetry, you've now been named Colorado's newest poet laureate. Yeah. So what do you want to do with the role? You know, uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. Right now, I'm really just trying to organize. We've had, it's been amazing. We've had an unprecedented amount of requests and interest. Really, my my role is serving as an ambassador to the state for poetry, right? So celebrating and promoting literacy and literature and, and poetry. Uh, more so than that, though, I am really interested in, in using poetry as a tool and a foot in the door to discuss you know, bigger issues and, and to connect with communities about what they're going through and what matters to them. Uh, I'm really excited about the opportunity of going to places that I've never been and maybe they have never uh, received someone like me. So I'm excited to hit some of the rural spots in the, in, in, the, in the state and really just reach out to folks and ask what they're going through and how my visit or presence can add to that. So you spent a lot of your artistic career talking about gentrification and it seems like this neighborhood has experienced a fair share of that. Absolutely. And your play, Northside, also touches on this issue. Yeah. So what do you think people still don't fully understand about what gentrification does to a community? You know, I, I, there's so much conversation. You know, I, I've been speaking about the conversation. It's almost cliche at this point. Like the word gentrification almost doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, and so it's it's sort of a tired term. And I think what we start to do, social scientists, when they start to study gentrification, they look at measurable things, right? So they look at the average home increase price, right? How much have homes increased in a certain period of time? What do the demographics look like? So these things that you can quantify. And so all of the check marks in these neighborhoods are, are hit. Demographic change, average income, people with college degrees, all of those things tie into the process, right, of how power and privilege works, um, how voices with power and privilege mean more to governments, to processes. And uh, I think one thing that's missed is the historical marginalization of mostly people of color in these neighborhoods and how at some point we were relegated to these neighborhoods through racist practices like redlining. And you know now that it's hot and sexy to be here again, folks are coming back and, and saying, this is ours now. So looking at all these townhomes, knowing what used to be here before, but the townhomes, you know, they also signify a lot of newcomers to the area. And I'm wondering, you know, does gentrification also vilify newcomers to an area and people who are excited to move here? You know, I don't think it's a, it's automatic villa. You know, I don't think it makes villains of them at all. I think that it is their responsibility to understand where they're moving into and understand the cultural and environmental context into which they're entering, right? I think all too often what happens with power and privilege is that folks move into a place and try to recreate it in their own image. And I think the, the primary issue with gentrification is cultural erasure, right? And so... If someone moves into a neighborhood and completely disregards what was there previously, I think that's where conflict arises, when there's no acclimation or assimilation into existing culture and a, an idea or uh, an attitude that we're here now, it's time for you to leave, right? And so I don't think that it automatically makes villains of folks, but I also don't think that it sets up 
communities for constructive dialogue because the process by which it's happening is emotional, it's social, it's economic. It's a modern manifestation of this sort of colonial attitude that this nation was built upon. So what is the name of this park? Uh, This is La Raza Park. Uh, At least that's what we call it. Officially, it's uh, Columbus Park, which is an interesting conversation. We were in and around here basically our whole lives. You know, sometimes we grab food at Chubby's down the street and come here and eat. Uh, I went to school here, middle school at Horace Mann, and every now and then we'd, you know, ditch, also go to Chubby's, come here and eat. Uh, So it's really a marker of the neighborhood the symbolism of this pyramid, there's a mural inside the kiosco here that was done by uh, David Ocelot Garcia that sort of, you know, is representative of, of the culture. And of course, the ongoing conversation versus of, uh, you know, Columbus versus La Raza Park is an interesting conversation, especially as we're talking about what ownership of space means and who gets to name things and who wins and who loses in that conversation. Mm-hmm. And you're the first person of color and also the youngest to hold the Colorado Poet Laureate position. Yeah. Is that important to you? Absolutely. I, I, you know, I'm very proud to, you know, be both the youngest and the first person of color. Um, Although, you know, in our, I don't know, over 100 year history of the Poet Laureate ship here in Colorado, I'm absolutely certain I'm not the first person qualified who's been a person of color for that position. But I think sometimes we forget that arts and culture does not live outside of the, you know, house of racism and patriarchy and marginalization that most of our institutions are built upon. And so it's not surprising, uh, but I am, you know, super humbled and very grateful for the opportunity to serve and to be able to really elevate and amplify our voices. And as Poet Laureate, how much do you want your work to reflect what's happening in the world beyond Colorado? You know, I think of issues like mass shootings and climate change and immigration. I think it's the poet's job to tell the truth. And the truth is, this world that we live in is filled with beautiful things and a lot of bloody things, things that are requiring our immediate attention, undeniable things that are happening in this world that I think poets have throughout history been able to address and distill through the spoken and written word. And so I, I do, I, I see it as a responsibility to address local, regional, national, international issues through my work. And can I ask, how are you feeling after the uh, El Paso shooting, which, you know, seems to have targeted Latinx people? Absolutely. You know, obviously, I think what's sad about this is, is all too often, this is happening all too often, right? And so there's this sort of numbness that we begin to experience in that we just sort of chalk it off to, oh, it happened again. And right now the bullseye is on our communities and as Latinx people who have a rich and, and complicated and diverse history, I view that as an attack on on all of us, right? Because our, our communities are so diverse, right? There's folks who have been here forever 
you know, my family's been in the Southwest before borders, but our recently arrived, you know, brothers and sisters from the Southern border, they're the same body and blood as us. So it hits a lot harder when it's so close. Do you view this position as also like a, an activist position or do you feel the responsibility to be involved in activism? My creative work and my community work and my social work lives at the intersection of all of these things. I don't necessarily see them as, I can't really untangle them. When you, you know, live this identity as a marginalized person, whether that's black communities, brown communities, indigenous communities, you know, when we're talking about women, anybody who is marginalized in this, you know, society, our identities are so complex and we have to approach everything we do in this intersectional way. And so I can't, like I said, I can't untangle those things from being so tightly married. And so I view a lot of the work that I do as a poet, as cultural work, as activist work. And so I think that my work will continue to address these things in a way that makes sense, in a way that is authentic to how I'm feeling about them, as well as with a strong understanding about how history and power and privilege has shaped this nation. What advice would you give young writers living in Colorado right now? You know, I think writing is, it's an interesting thing, right? It, I think so many of us who are writers, it's not something we do. It's just part of our identities. And we do it because there's this organic, innate drive to express ourselves. And I would say that do the best you can to connect with your voice, you know, have influences, read a lot, but really spend time finding your own voice because the more you do that, the closer you are to that, the more uh, robust and authentic your work's going to be and the truer your words will ring out to those outside of you. I think that all too often we worry about appeasing people or assimilating into what is the norm when really our diversity and our unique voices are what makes us so much more powerful. And we'd be surprised at how much those general themes that are maybe those personal themes that we think are very close to us resonate with people in general. And um, poetry has that power to take something that's very personal and create this very wide net of communication and... Um, understanding that I think is at the foundation of why we, we write poetry. And that is Colorado's new poet, laureate Bobby Lefebvre, speaking with Colorado Matters producer, Exandra McMahon. They met in Denver's Sunnyside neighborhood. A new salvo this week in the Green Chili War between Colorado and its neighbor, the governor of New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham, has upped the ante. She tweeted, There's a reason they call New Mexico the chili capital of the world. No one does it better. Eat your heart out, Colorado. Her post was accompanied by a new ad from New Mexico's tourism department, which makes a not-so-subtle reference to Colorado. Why is New Mexico green chili the only true green chili? Because we've been doing this for hundreds of years. Growing chilies in the perfect climate. Rocky, rugged soil, where only the strong survive. So that our less fortunate neighbors to the north can load up their wagons and keep their families warm. 
At that point in the ad, there's an image of a Subaru with Colorado native plates loaded with chili. New Mexico has also bought billboards in Denver, Colorado Springs, and Pueblo, which say chili capital of the world, New Mexico true. Now, you may remember Colorado Governor Jared Polis touched a nerve this summer when he posted on social media that Pueblo's chilies are superior. I asked him about that back in July. So I think it's clear that Pueblo chili is far better than Hatch chili of New Mexico. And that's why what's kicked this off is Whole Foods, you know, a premium grocery store, announced that across the entire Rocky Mountain region, they were going to stock Pueblo chili. So that's what kicked this off. Uh, I think I just read a couple days ago that NASA is going to take Hatch chili to space. Uh, and so I think it showed that New Mexico chili is actually fleeing the planet. Uh, we just, we just, we are. I did talk to Michelle Lujan Grishin about it. I saw her. We're working on the details of a chili cook-off to prove definitively, once and for all, that Pueblo chili is superior. Still no word on a date for that, but we doubt it'll actually settle things. Now, if you count sheer acreage, this is a multi-million dollar industry for both states. Although the latest figures from the U.S. Department of Agriculture show Colorado's crop is much, much smaller than New Mexico's. I guess now might be a bad time to point out that Hatch Green Chili from New Mexico are the official green chilies of the Denver Broncos. Let the debate rage on. We'll continue after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado is a hotbed for bluegrass music, with homegrown acts like Yonder Mountain String Band and Leftover Salmon and iconic festivals from Telluride to Lyons. This state is a destination for pickers, including the Grammy-winning Steep Canyon Rangers out of North Carolina. The wind on the high plains sounds like a freight train rolling such a shame everybody but me must have seen the thing coming. Steep Canyon Rangers have been coming to Colorado for nearly 20 years. Just this summer, they performed at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, the Seven Peaks Music Festival in Buena Vista, and tonight they'll be at Red Rocks. Guitarist and lead vocalist Woody Platt did a little reminiscing with us. Colorado was our first biggest journey. You know, it was our first kind of real road trip as a band. At the time, you know, we were considered really traditional in Colorado. It was interesting, we would kind of be perceived as progressive on the East Coast and then traditional in Colorado. Well, still we'll ride, still rail, and the rubber wheel rides the road. The ground underneath my boot heels burns right through my soul, right through my weary soul. We reached Platt at his home in Brevard, North Carolina, in the mountains near Asheville, and we asked him to share a favorite memory of touring in Colorado. When we were first developing the band, we would play a lot in Aspen and in Carbondale. And there was a woman there, they called her Granny, but her name was Pamela McPherson, and she owned a, a hostel in Aspen in the early days called the Snow Chase. She had a basement in her house with a dozen queen beds. And we got hooked up with her through the radio station in Carbondale, KDNK. 
we started staying at her house. And so, and, and it was just an open door policy. And she was old, you know, she was in her 80s when we would stay with her. And she wouldn't answer the door or maybe wouldn't even talk to you some of the times. But it was just an open door policy, roll in, move in downstairs. And that's what we did for several years. We just go to Granny's. And she lived on the river, so we'd fish behind her house on the Roaring Fork. And we got to know her pretty well. We would take her out to dinner. And and uh, she treated us really well. And uh, we would mail her a Christmas card, and she would put it on a thin veneer of wood and cut it with a jigsaw and send it back as a puzzle. We did a photo shoot with her one time in her yard. And she got out a couple guns and a couple rifles and held them during the picture. And, She's just a very unique woman. Lady Colorado, she treats me so good, treats me so good, treats me so good. Lady Colorado, she treats me so good, oh, I miss her so. Take the wheel, it's spinning out of control. Platt mentioned fly fishing on the Roaring Fork, and indeed, he's an avid angler. He started guiding when he was 19 and almost opened his own fly shop. Every time I get out there, I have a moment or two to jump in the rivers. We've been lucky to meet people and to know different outfitters, so kind of get the local knowledge. They're all over the state. Last time we played Red Rock, I fished with a friend at a Rocky Mountain Anglers in Boulder, and we had a great trip. And I love Colorado trout streams. They're a lot like the North Carolina trout streams to me. They're very weightable for the most part. A lot of the smaller streams, you can get in them, and they fish very similar to the streams here on the East Coast. So it's fun to take your knowledge from one place and try to apply it to a different stream. And Colorado is one of my favorite places to climb in the water. Every line of time, grab the fishing line, gonna get old Jim with the yellow back fly. Bought it in a store, paid a little more, gonna catch that fish with the yellow back fly. Tried it last year, the lit firefly, laid it on the water with a perfect bullseye. Jim made a splash, gone in a flash, beneath the water I heard him laugh. I go at 6 a.m., quiet as a hen, gonna catch old Jim with the yellow back fly. Gonna catch him right, gonna catch him quick, take him by surprise at the bottom of the creek. Now, if the name Steep Canyon Rangers sounds familiar, you may know them as the supporting band for comedian and banjo player Steve Martin. And in fact, it was fly fishing that got them connected. Woody Platt became good friends with Steve Martin's wife after meeting her on a fishing trip years ago. While she and Martin were dating, she arranged to meet up with Platt. And why don't we let Steve pick up his story, which he told on stage with the Rangers a while back. Uh, we met at a party in North Carolina. My wife and her family liked to vacation there. And one night they said, oh, we're going to a party and there's going to be a local band who's going to perform there. And I thought, <laughs> a local band. Oh, this is going to be amusing. <laughs> and it turned out to be these guys. And we've been together ever since. And that's actually the true story. Um, Of course, uh, that doesn't go down so well in Hollywood. So there, I tell people we met in rehab. (laughs) And we probably will one day. Woody Platt says he and his bandmates have learned a lot working with Steve Martin, namely what to avoid. The first thing we did was take all the comedy out of our show. (laughs) We we used to try to be funny. And then we saw what 
Tony really means. This is a song. Well, that pretty much says it. <laughs> to experience that night after night on stage with him has helped hone our stagecraft. Just the work ethic that he has, keeping the pedal down all the time, is real show business. And, you know, he's done a lot for us, and we're forever grateful for the partnership. Tonight's show will be the Rangers' third Red Rocks performance. Steve Martin won't be there, so while there might be fewer jokes, it is their first shot at playing Red Rocks on their own. You know, it's one of those must-see venues for an audience, and it's one of those must-play-in venues for a band. And when you put those two things together, it's a pretty deadly combination. Everybody realizes how unique and special it is to perform at Red Rocks, and we're excited to have another shot at it. I'm out in the open, out in the open, out in the open and out on the moon. Standing in front of you, just me and the truth. Woody Platts, guitarist, singer, and frontman for Steep Canyon Rangers of North Carolina. The Grammy-winning bluegrass group returns to Red Rocks tonight. I watched him fall and I got free. Now I can see in every direction. I can see for miles and miles. That's our show for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Standing in front